Among them was Earl Simon. This was his first step to power. It was little likely that the Fifteen would be agreed over the problems which confronted them, and it was soon apparent that Simon did not see eye to eye with his colleagues. The other barons, it appeared, were anxious enough to reform the king. They had not the least desire, however, to reform themselves. Do what he might to get the grievances of the lower orders considered, Simon found that the barons were still purely selfish, still as unwilling as ever to do anything for their own unhappy tenants. Their aim, in short, was simply to substitute a tyranny of fifteen for the tyranny of one. Then their attitude filled de Montfort with so much disgust that he quarrelled with them and left the country for a while. Events soon called him back, however. The king's submission had been no more than a temporary expedient. The royal party, for the king had followers too, were up in arms, and the earl was perhaps not sorry to plunge into a struggle which, if successful, might enable him to deal with England as he wished to deal. There is little doubt that Simon was ambitious, though ambitious in a noble cause. He meant to set things aright, and in accomplishing his ends he did not shrink, as we shall see, from taking the supreme power into his hands and making himself the virtual king of England. He was about to take the next and the most momentous step towards his goal. For now, yet once again, the country became involved in civil war. The promises which Henry gave at Oxford had been torn up. The king, as usual, had gone back upon his word. The Pope, also as usual, had obligingly released him from his oath, and Louis of France, called in to arbitrate between the parties, had given his judgment for the king. Simon saw before him no other course but an appeal to arms. But now, to his infinite disgust, he discovered that the barons were deserting him. Except for a few enthusiasts, he stood almost alone. Yet he did not despair. Though all forsake me, he declared, I and my four sons will stand for the just cause. And his courage was rewarded. The just cause found other supporters than the baronage. The towns, where, as we have seen, the spirit of English independence was most strong, were ready now to follow this champion of their liberties. London was with the Earl, and he fixed his headquarters there. All the chief commercial centres, especially the seaport towns of Kent and Sussex, rallied to London's lead. Simon was assured of an army, and of an army, as it turned out, sufficient to defeat the king. While the Earl's army was gathering, the king, after an excursion into the Midlands, marched on the south coast, aiming at the seaport towns. There Simon followed him. It was on the slopes of the South Downs upon Lewes Castle that the fight took place. Simon caught the king's force napping, as one morning he descended towards the town over the open turf. His generalship was of no mean order, and although the raw levies of the Londoners fared badly, Simon's horsemen on the other wing drove back the royalist knights into the marshes of the Ouse. Here they floundered in the mud. Many were drowned, the rest dispersed in flight. The earl's triumph was complete, and among the prisoners taken were the king himself and his eldest son, Edward, Prince of Wales. The victor seemed, for the time being at least, to have England at his feet. For one year Simon was king in all but name. For one year he was able to issue orders with all the authority which the position of his royal captive's person lent him. For one year, and one year was all too brief, he endeavoured to carry into practice his schemes of reform for the betterment of England. 
By an agreement made at Luz, a new royal council or committee was to be appointed, of which all members were to be true-born Englishmen. Ministers were in future to be responsible to this council, and not to the king alone. For Simon, ahead as usual of the age in which he lived, seems to have formed the bold conception of a monarchy limited by constitutional government. Above all, the commons, as well as the nobility, were to be represented in the great council of the realm, which now already was beginning to be called by the name of Parliament. Four men from every shire, and two burgesses from every borough, were to join the barons at the board. Thus both townsfolk and countryfolk were at least to have their spokesmen, and through the mouths of these the commons might air their grievances. In other and quieter times the scheme might well have worked, and Simon's dreams been fully realized. But those dreams were doomed to disappointment.'